Hello and welcome back to another episode of Creedal. I have very exciting news today. I heard the several of you who wrote to me and said, hey, you should bring back that thing with Andrew where you talk about what a week and you do the fake news stuff and the close read. I like that. Well, I'm here to tell you, although it's been since December 8th that we last did a what a week segment, we're bringing it back today. Andrew Pettiprin rejoining me for the first time in a long time to bring back what a week. Andrew, welcome back to Creedal. A pleasure to see you, my friend. Zach, this feels like a homecoming. It feels like old times. And uh, we were really on a roll there for a while. So I'm really glad to to get back to it. And uh, I know a lot's happened since we were last together, but uh, it's really good to do this again. You know, we were talking before we uh, hit the, re- well, I guess it was the first time we hit the record button and then we had some technical difficulties. But I was saying, someone who was really enjoying our segment last year, they might've thought that we had some sort of falling out because we're very regular. Every, every week to two weeks, we're putting out a, a what a week show. And then we do one on December 8th and, and then nothing. So uh, definitely no falling out. We've been texting a lot throughout, just lots of things going on in both of our lives. Andrew's got some professional developments. I'll let him speak to, uh, to the degree that he wants to. Um, I'm definitely excited about what's going on and uh, how you, know, you might be seeing, listening, hearing, or reading more of, uh, of Andrew a lot more in the, in the coming you know, months and uh, weeks and months. So there's some stuff going on there as well. That's very exciting. Um, but overall, definitely love to have you back on. We're going to try to kick this, kick this up again and start doing it, not to the same degree or the same frequency that we once did, but maybe on a monthly basis or so. So I don't know if we'll rename it what a month. It doesn't quite have the same alliteration, Andrew, but we're going to bring it back. We're going we're to be doing this on a more regular basis. And today we've got the fake news segment. We've got the close read. We've got the recommendations at the end. So all of your favorite Parts of what a week are here and we are ready to go. But Andrew, before we do all that, how have you been in 2000, 2023 so far this year? It's been a crazy year. It's been for me crazy, Zach, as you know, from just our private correspondence. Yeah, I, uh, I, left, my, I left my job and I'm kind of on my own now. I'm doing a lot of writing. I am, uh, I've got a, another pro- uh, podcasting project in the works. Still looking for more opportunities to pay the bills and to to kind of you know develop professionally and all that kind of thing. But I, I feel great. I you know spiritually I'm in a really good place and uh, just really excited for all kinds of new opportunities uh, opening up here. So you know I'm I'm grateful for your support during this kind of weird transition time that I've been in and glad to be back broadcasting to the world together. Absolutely. Now, maybe by way of sort of uh, I don't know summarizing some of the things that have been going on in your life over the past several months. Uh, I know you've written about this recently. You've told me about it, but can you share a bit about your trip to England and uh, kind of the things that transpired oh, yeah. on that trip? And uh, I know you came back pretty, pretty reinvigorated and and refreshed by it. And I, I certainly understand a little bit about what you, what you meant by that when you told me because of my time in England, uh, I definitely found it to be, to be spiritually enriching as well. So tell us a bit about, about your experience there. Well, it's it's really wild. I mean, it, the trip turned out to be kind of the last hurrah for me in my old position as fellow of the Word on Fire Institute. I went with Bishop Robert Barron, who was my boss until about a month ago, and uh, it was it was an incredible journey. We were there for eight days. We were staying right in the heart of London. We went to the Tower of London and stood in a cell where Thomas More spent his last year. Um, we my patron saint, by the way. Yes, I know your patron saint. That's really exciting. Um, we went, we went there, we went to parliament, we, uh, we got a private tour of the national gallery and I just got to do a whole lot of wandering on my own. And for the first time as a Catholic, because the last time I was there, I was an Anglican very much, very much so, and actually became an Anglican there and then sort of lived as an Anglican for a few years there. 
but I went to the Brompton Oratory. I went to um, to Warwick Street, which is where the Ordinariate Parish is in in London. I went to Westminster Cathedral a couple times. I met lots of really exciting, interesting, zealous, like fascinating Catholic people while I was there. Um, and actually, I wrote a big piece about this for the Catholic Herald that's going to be coming out, I think, in their next print edition. Just kind of some of my reflections on, frankly, like the the inspiration that I took from being with these Catholics in England. It was really, it was just really fantastic. So um, it really helped me come alive again. I got to say, like, it, it's one of those things, Zach, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but it's like, it's not until you wake up that you realize you've been asleep, right? It's not, it's not until you sort of like feel good again and feel alive again that you sort of realize that something was off. And, um, and maybe we'll get into this actually in the close read today, but I, I really came to, to, to discover during this England journey that I had been not in the best place, just spiritually, mentally, emotionally, I was just kind of struggling with some stuff. And, um, you know, my departure from my, from my job is kind of bound up in that as well. And, and now just kind of enjoying this, this freedom, even though there's a lot of uncertainty, but yeah, the England trip was a once in a lifetime thing. And, um, you know, I just highly recommend that everybody find a place, you know, I mean, it, this sort of came together for me and it was, it, it is a special place on the planet earth for me. And so it was really special that I got to go back there and hadn't been in a really long time, but you know, there really is something to be said for just changing scenery, um, doing some exploring, trying something new. Uh, it's very good. It's very good for our souls. I, uh, yeah, I, I definitely can appreciate all of what you just said. Um, I often think, man, I would love to go back to England and just, just live there. You know, if, if someone offered me, well, I don't want to leave my current job, but, uh, I guess if, if my current job and if my current employer said, Hey, we want to send you to England, I would be, I'd be over the moon ecstatic about it. It would be so fun to go back and live and work there. I once lived and studied there as did you in Oxford. And it was great. It was just yeah. so, it was so, it was wonderful. And I probably am guilty, am guilty of, um, kind of romanticizing that it probably wasn't as wonderful as I remember it being. But I remember being pretty darn good uh, and would love Man, to go, I, love go back. I, well, I got to tell you, I, yeah, I thought going there, I thought it might be a disappointment because I thought to myself before I got there, like, oh, I probably have romanticized my time because I was such a young man yeah, then and yeah. I was in this sort of incredible time of my life as you know, as you do. And so I kind of thought, well, I'm sure I'll have a good time. But I mean, will this really live up to to my to my memories. And cause I hadn't, I haven't, I hadn't been there in 19 years and, um, it was, it, it more than, it more than exceeded. I mean, it, it was sort of more wonderful than I really could have imagined. And, um, I, I think it was just a special, excuse me, a special grace. Uh, it, it must've been the Lord just really knew to put me in that place at that time because it really helped. Well, I'm so happy for you. I remember seeing the, uh, seeing the photo of you and several others, you know, crossing Abbey road. It was, it was a great shot. And uh, I thought it was a yeah, fitting. Yeah, I got to uh, play John. I love it. I love it. It was a fitting, yeah. um, a fitting uh, conclusion to your time as the fellow of popular culture at World on Fire. So I thought that was great. Yeah, kind of was. Um, well, let's dive into the uh, the segments here for what a week. The first one, of course, fake news. I give you a variety of news articles, and you have to distinguish the fake from the real. Uh, all but one of these is going to be a genuine news article that comes from a you know an actual news source and is related to a factual event that really happened. One of them is fake, and you have to tell me the uh, one that is fake versus the ones that are real. Are you ready to go, Andrew? I'm ready. Let's do it. It's been a while. I've, I've selected four, by the way, so it's a little bit harder than a normal three. But there, you know, there's just there's a there's an embarrassment of riches uh, for things to uh, things to use here. So here we go. Um, we'll just we'll stay right on the topic here of Britain, and I will uh, 
uh, give you this article. You'll tell me if it's fake or news. This is from the European Conservative, which tells us that there is a British government anti-terrorism unit called Prevent, very creatively named, and Prevent focuses on reducing instances of non-violent extremism. And Prevent has published a report that says reading the works of Christian writers such as C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien could lead to radicalization. And this, uh, this if we can call it a blacklist, this list of kind of banned, or not banned, this list of works that can incite radicalization includes uh, George Orwell's 1984 and a BBC documentary series following former conservative minister Michael Portillo's uh, journey on trains across the country. Um, Additionally, according to the report, key signs that people have an affinity for the far right and Brexit, apparently associating Brexit with right-wing extreme, extremism, include watching the TV series Civilization and The Thick of It, and reading classics of political philosophy such as Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan, John Locke's Two Treatises of Government, and Edmund Burke's Reflections on the Revolution in France. Okay, so that's the first one. The British government okay. is warning us that reading C.S. Lewis, John Locke, George Orwell and the Lord of the Rings could lead to us being radicalized. Uh, I should add here as well. Um, this could be fake, could be real. You know, I like to I like to develop elaborate um, elaborate uh, custom written fake news articles. But here we go. The Prevent program is focused on nonviolent extre extremism defined as vocal or active opposition to fundamental British values. So that's a that's the way they're they're describing extremism, opposition to British values. Okay, number two. Blue states are buying up Bud Light amid legal uncertainty. California's governor, this is, this is, by the way, from Politico. California's governor announced Monday the state would be stockpiling cases of Bud Light in case of a boycott. Okay. So uh, backstory on this, Andrew, you may have seen. Uh, hopefully you didn't just for, the, just for the sake of, you know, I don't know, your sanity. Hopefully you didn't see that Bud Light partnered with um, influencer Dylan Mulvaney. Dylan Mulvaney is a biological male who now identifies as a female uh, and has been doing so for, I think, a year now. And so Bud Light partnered with him and said, we want to congratulate you on three, 365 days of girlhood. So they made him a custom can with his face on it. And then he posted it to social media and there was a uh, very predictable and, and justifiable backlash uh, against Bud Light uh, by folks on you know, the, what I guess, I guess what is now just the American right, Andrew, but uh, who have, you know, in a previous life would just say people who have uh, common sense and good judgment. And so Bud Light stock, uh, Anheuser-Busch is the parent company, their stock has shed $5 billion of value in this time. And um, this, the country singer, Rich Hill, uh, the country singer, or Kid Rock have both said they're not going to drink Bud Light anymore and encourage other people to not. So there is, there is a targeted boycott going on. Okay. So back to that and back to the, the political article here. Governor Gavin Newsom said Monday that California had secured 250,000 cases of Bud Light uh, and negotiated the purchase of up to 2 million more from the parent company Anheuser-Busch, the latest move by a state that has repeatedly tried to, to shore up access to consumer goods for, US, for its citizens uh, in the event of possible boycotts of those goods from other states. Uh, so that is the second article. Uh, Newsom is quoted here. We will not cave to extremists who are trying to prevent access to these favorite American products, the Democratic governor said in a statement. Bud Light will always remain legal in California. Okay, so that's the second article. Third article from Fox Business. 
Whole Foods in San Francisco is closing one year after opening due to safety concerns. Whole Foods Market announced that a store in downtown San Francisco that when it launched was called the flagship store will be closed after Monday. This would be this past Monday, I think, just over a year after the store first opened because of crime in the city. The grocery store chains that the Whole Foods located at the Market Streets will be closed temporarily as it deals with crime near the store that has impacted its workers' safety. Okay, that is, it's a 64,000 square foot uh, location, opened in March 2022. It cut its operating hours in October uh, and then had to change its bathroom rules after syringes and pipes were found. So syringes and crack pipes in the bathroom of Whole Foods, not exactly what you want when you're buying your organic kale. Okay, fourth article. Uh, from WSAZ3, uh, which is, I believe, a Florida news site. Tallahassee, uh, Florida, a woman identified as a teacher at Griffin Middle School in Tallahassee, Florida, is facing charges for contributing to the delinquency of a minor for organizing an in-class fight club. <laughs> According to, the, to these documents, several sixth grade girls told detectives that they participated in planned fights during school hours and that they alleged they were invited back for additional fights. They reported that the teacher made statements to the students, including, you have 30 seconds to fight, no screaming, no yelling, no phones. And this teacher was caught and arrested because one student in the class broke the rules and filmed the fight club with his phone. Okay, Andrew, those are the four. What do you think is real? What do you think is fake? Oh boy, Zach, this really is just like old times. Those are, those are beautiful, beautiful selections. I, I know our, our listeners are going to be excited to hear those. Um, what fun to hear those descriptions. Okay, here's, here's what I think. All right, the first one about British extremism. Now, I subscribe to the European Conservative. I've written for them a couple of times. I have not heard this story. Uh, I haven't come across it yet. So I'm a little suspicious of it just because I haven't seen it myself. However, I think I'm going to say that that one is true. And I'm just wondering what else needs to go on the list. You know, Winnie the Pooh, uh, the wind in the willows. Um, you know, are, are we allowed to watch Monty Python anymore? Probably I mean, not. No. Nope. Well, I mean, what it, goes on? Yeah. To your point, I saw another news article recently. This is true, by the way. So your, your guess is correct. Um, Okay. But I saw another article about Roald Dahl, the beloved children's author, and how his books are now being edited, uh, back edited by the publishers uh, to remove offensive words. And the offensive words are things like fat or, you know, things that, that you know, mm -hmm. quote unquote body shame various characters uh, or belittle them or, you know, uh, are ableist, et cetera. Uh, and so, yeah, you're, to your point, Roald Dahl could, I, I guess, lead to extremism, you know, things contrary to British values, uh, to use that, uh, use that definition. But yes, this is a true, a true story, in fact. Great reason, by the way, to be sure that you have hard copies, physical copies of all these wonderful books, because you never know, they could get memory hold. George Orwell himself yep. seems to be on the chopping block. So, well, I kid you not, Andrew, wow. after I read that Roald Dahl stuff, uh, my wife and I talked about it. We went and bought a bunch of the Roald Dahl original library. So we have the unedited. Uh, I'm reading Matilda to the kids right now, actually. Terrific. Yeah. Yeah, we have those too. Roald Dahl is one of my daughter's very favorites and she was horrified to find out that they're tampering with her. Just, with just one of her so favorite bad. Authors. Just so bad. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 
All right. Um, the, the other one, let me skip around a little bit here. Okay. The other one that I know is true because my mother-in-law told me about it yesterday is the one about the Whole Foods in San Francisco closing. Um, what a what a disaster San Francisco is. You know, my wife and I went on our honeymoon there in January 2006. Um, that's the one time I've been to San Francisco. We explored that whole region a little bit. And I loved it. It was so beautiful. I mean, just what a great city to walk around and just really, really great place. And man, it seems like it's just been completely trashed. I mean, like it just seems totally impossible now. And man, if a Whole Foods can't, can't make it in San Francisco, that's, that's pretty crazy. Yep. So that's true. It is indeed. There's some additional context as well. I didn't realize this, but apparently the San Francisco police department has lost 300 officers out of its total 1500. So there's been, uh, what is What is that? Uh, I guess 1800 to start with 300 have gone. That's something like 17 or 18% attrition, uh, in its police force, which is bad. And it's really bad considering that they actually, they say they need to be at 2100 to actually effectively police. So yeah, this is a, this is definitely, definitely not a good thing. Man, you know, by the way, just a, a little tidbit that, that, that prosecutor that they had in San Francisco who got like recalled, mm -hmm. I think do you remember that story sure do. last year, Sure do. that, that guy was a Rhodes scholar, yes. I think around the same time that I was, that I was a Marshall scholar. I didn't know him, but I mean, it's like, man, I hate to say it, but like typical, right? I yep. mean, sorry, sorry, dude. Cause I know you're a Rhodes scholar, but I mean, man, the elites, the best of the best are, are just bonkers. Yep. I hate it. I mean, we're among them, but hopefully we're not, you know, not. We we have some sense about us. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, yeah he was, it was, I think it was Chesa Boudin, and I'm probably uh, uh, mispronouncing the name, but yes, he was indeed. Let's see. I'm looking him up now. He was, so he's aged 42 now. So he was in grad school. Yeah, it's actually unclear. I don't see the dates here on his Wikipedia page, but it was probably. Yeah. Here we go. So he earned his, he earned his, uh. He earned his law degree in 2011, so probably count backwards three years, and that's probably when he wrapped up it at Oxford. Um, but yeah, I mean, just just what what an embarrassment! <laughs> what an embarrassment! Yeah. Uh, it's 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 sad. It's a beautiful city. All right, so down to the last two. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say that the last one about the the teacher organizing the Fight Club. I'm gonna say that's true because uh, it's Florida. I'm from Florida, so I can say that. Um, and uh, then I'm going to say that your your story about buying up the Bud Light that was a really good one, but I, I think I think you cooked that one up. So I'm going to say that number two, blue states buying the Bud Light that that's the fake. That is that is correct. You've nailed this one. Um, the Fight Club is in fact true, and I also think uh, that that was the biggest clue that this happened in Florida. It's just like that that common meme about Florida man, you know, Florida man arrested mm -hmm. for running a Fight Club in class. This is. This is just, this is very on brand, uh, for Florida, I think. So <laughs> not surprising. Um, and then yes, the Bud Light one was made up. However, I basically substituted the words Bud Light for, uh, what is the, actually the abortion pill. So the true story here is that Gavin Newsom is in fact leading a, an effort to stockpile the abortion pill. Uh, he secured 250,000 misoprostol pills and is trying to get an agreement for 2 million more. Uh, basically saying these will always be legal in California. If you can't access these because you're in some totalitarian fascist state like Texas, you can come here to this safe sanctuary where we have uh, syringes and crack pipes in the bathrooms of our Whole Foods. At least you can get an abortion here without the government interfering. So uh, that is the real story, Andrew. That is in Politico. 
I just substituted Bud Light because I thought it would be a, a rather cheeky thing. I almost wouldn't pass it, wouldn't put it past uh, you know people like Newsom at this point though to just start start stockpiling Bud Light <laughs> in the face of yeah. conservative boycotts. So maybe we'll see the day. I wouldn't be terribly shocked. I wonder if Kid Rock is going to take an AR-15 to a stockpile of abortion pills or something like you did to the Bud Light. That was yeah. a pretty amusing yeah. uh, video that was going around on the internet. I do, I do, uh, I, I, I just, I find it all humorous when, um, you know, conservative country stars really embrace the, embrace the countryside of themselves and film something like that. Like, let me just shoot up Bud Light cans with an AR-15. It's, um, it, it, it's, it's amusing. It's amusing. God bless America. <laughs> all right. Let's go into our close read section. Andrew, I will let you introduce this one. Um, I will. I will simply say uh, the author and uh, and what's in it. Uh, this is from Cardinal Cantalamesa, who is the preacher to the papal household in the Vatican. And this close read, uh, I definitely encourage you to find it. It's in the show notes. It's very good, very good. Uh, I had not seen it before you brought it to my attention, Andrew. Uh, but it is the homily um, that Cantalamesa gave on Good Friday uh, at the Vatican. So uh, without further ado, Andrew, over to you just to do a very quick synopsis and we can we can dive in. Again, it's not long, so this doesn't even take us that long, but there are some really important points here that I would love to discuss. So over to you. Yeah, yeah. So as you say, it's it's a homily delivered by Cardinal Cantalamesa, who just a little bit more context for people who don't know about him. He's been the uh, the papal preacher since 1980. So he has been, and and technically, I'm, I'm I understand he's the only person who's allowed to preach to the Pope, um, and he's now done that for three popes. So um, anyway, so he's he's an older priest now, I guess, but he's been around a long time as a preacher. I I don't really know. I, I haven't really like read or heard his sermons before. So you know, don't hold me or us accountable to other sermons that you might experience from him, but I would imagine they're quite good since the popes have kept him around for so long. And this one was was really. Uh, really poignant. And as you said, he delivered it uh, during the Liturgy of the Passion on Good Friday. So that would be last week. We're in bright week, the week after Easter. And um, so this would have been last Friday. And uh, mercifully, it is short. And let me say something about that real quick first, um, because uh, I actually put a put a, a word out on Twitter uh, during Holy Week or early in Holy Week asking priests like what their what their prep process was like for uh, for preparing to preach the the triduum, for example, you know, because it's something that for me as a former clergyman, although yeah. not a Catholic, as an Anglican clergyman, you know, that I was always sort of strategizing, like, you know, what what are the kinds of themes that I want to convey during these like really powerful liturgies, sure, stuff, yeah. you know. But there's there's always this temptation that you say too much, I, I think, or that you sort of say the wrong kinds of things, especially because the liturgies themselves preach themselves in a way, right? I mean, like you don't, on, on Good Friday, when you have this whole long reading of the Passion from St. John's Gospel, I mean, it, it conveys so much just in the story itself, you know, so you don't want to like overkill what you want to say, right? And this this homily, I think, is really, it's really a homily that I think uh, complements well um, having all of this like scripture washed over you and all of this kind of powerful liturgy where you're reenacting it's a really powerful liturgy, by the way, don't you think? I mean, that like it's it's so like at least in kind of the ordinary form, right? It's you know the people usually kind of chant the parts of of like the crowd, like yep. crucify him, and you right, know, right. I mean, it really is like this sort of powerful kind of participatory experience. I mean, all yes. liturgy is participatory, but but it's 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 special. No, this, on this, this, this was especially so when you are when you're chanting crucify him, crucify him. It 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 
is poignant. Yeah, and that speaks to the, one of the major points that Cantela Mesa makes in in the article because he's talking about the death of God, the de- obviously the death of Jesus, the God Man, right? But he he begins with the the reminder of something that we say, or most of us say in the liturgy um, each week or sing, um, we proclaim your death, O Lord, right? That, so we proclaim your death, O Lord, we profess your resurrection until you come again, right? So every at every celebration of the Eucharist, we are gathering to uh, proclaim, um, proclaim the Lord's death. And this is a really important point that I, I, I'm not sure even, even those of us who attend a Good Friday liturgy, I mean, even those of us who go to Mass regularly, really contemplate deeply enough that that Jesus really died. You know, he didn't pretend to die. He right. didn't sort of like just kind of seem to die. He really died. And it's essential that he did die. Um, and it's essential to understand the circumstances for what happened, how it happened, why it happened. But then also then to move on to the proclamation of his defeat of that same death, the resurrection from the dead. So so he begins with that reminder to us, which is really apt for Good Friday, obviously. But then he says, but we've got this other problem. So now we, we it's good that we remember that that in a, in a, a real way, um, we killed God in a manner of speaking. Right. We kind of reenact that during the good Friday liturgy, like we're with the crowd, like humanity did this. It wasn't just these, this particular group of people, you know, but he says, there's been another, another death of God. And he talks about this as the ideological one rather than the historical one. And he attaches this idea to, of course, the famous philosopher Nietzsche, who um, writes famously in his, I believe it's from 1883, his, his book, um, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, uh, he's got the character of the madman who, uh, and you've got the whole thing in, in that book about the Superman, the Ubermensch. Uh, but the, the madman proclaims uh, that humanity has, has killed God. And uh, in the homily here, Council Mesa uh, quotes from the spoke Zarathustra. And he says this, uh, whither is God? I will tell you, we have killed him. You and I, there has never been a greater deed, and whoever is born after us for the sake of this deed, he will belong to a higher history than all history hitherto. And this is where the Ubermensch or the Superman idea comes in, which is if God, if this sort of God in the sky, the supernatural God really isn't the kind of God we put our faith and trust in anymore, then to fill that void has to be a stronger humanity, a stronger human um, and, you know, so he develops in this whole idea of the Ubermensch, which, you know, here we are all these years later. And I think it's pretty obvious that that idea is just ludicrous. I mean, humanity can never fill the void of, of a creator God, of a sustainer God, of a God who can redeem. Humans can't do that for themselves. And we all know that. Um, and so that leads us to despair. And, and, you know, maybe I'll throw it back to you to kind of see where you want to, where you want to take it from there. But Kanzala Mesa kind of develops this idea throughout of reminding us of this this twofold approach to thinking about the death of God, the one which is ultimately a message of hope. God died and rose again so that we may live, and the other is a complete dead end that goes nowhere, that that leaves us bereft of hope and and points us to despair. And so, you know, he's encouraging, especially the faithful. He's not necessarily trying to say, hey, look, you know, you need to try and bring every single person back into the into the fold of, of understanding the death of God in the form of Christ on the cross. But he's saying, those of us who do say this, those of us who do proclaim this every week, we proclaim your death, O Lord. 
we need to really appreciate this and understand it so that we don't, in a sense, just kind of like slip and fall into the black hole, which is this sort of swirling culture of relativism that's all around us. So that's kind of more or less the summary. I'll throw it back to you and sort of uh, see where you want to take it. No, that's great. But I think we should talk about, and I, I totally agree with your summary. I think uh, that's very, very apt. I think we should talk about Nietzsche, though, and how Nietzsche, yeah. first of all, uh, certainly a brilliant philosopher. Uh, Edward Oakes, um, who is, um, or was, uh, he passed away, I think, from pancreatic cancer um, several years ago, but he actually was the dissertation advisor for uh, our friend Larry Chapp. Um, but Edward Oakes, um, I, I, I've heard this quote before, and I, I looked him up, looked it up, and it, it, it turned out to be Edward Oakes, and I was like, of course it was Edward Oakes. Uh, this quote is something about you know Nietzsche being the only honest atheist uh, or the only true atheist. Um, you know, something like there's, there's, there's never a fully honest or a fully true atheist, except perhaps Nietzsche. And, um, that's getting at something pretty profound here, uh, in that I think Nietzsche alone is the one to sort of have the conviction to declare the death of God and to super elevate man over and above what was God in his paradigm. And, um, the, the, the interesting thing is he's, if his conclusions are right, then his, if his premises are right, then his conclusion is sound. But to me, the even more interesting thing is, is that he's partly, he's partly right here. Kanzala Mesa calls this another death of God. I'm actually not so sure that this is another death of God. I think that, they're, that we're talking about the same God or the same death of God. When we in the liturgy proclaim God's death, we're talking about, as you said, Andrew, Jesus, who is fully man and fully God. So, um, one person, two natures. We're talking about that person dying, a very real, very physical, very visceral death. Now, of course, God didn't die in his God nature, and he's eternally coexisting as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But in his human nature, God certainly died. And so it was a very, very real death. And if that is true, as Nietzsche recognizes, if it is true that God has in fact died, then we can in fact divide history up into a before his death and into an after his death. And we do. We have for 2,000 years. We have a BC before Christ and we have an AD. And now, of course, there's the more, the more popular or increasingly popular before common era and after common era. But that just that uh, sort of under, underscores the point that we still have this thing called a common era. And what separates the common era from before the common era? It's it's Christ. So there is this before and after, this very clear before and after period, just as, just as Nietzsche recognized. Um, now, Nietzsche obviously rejected the Holy Trinity. He rejected God at all. Uh, he rejected, of course, the divinity of Jesus, because if you reject God, how can you have the divinity of Jesus? But he recognized that this death of God would, in fact, portend something new, some, something, something else. Uh, and that something else in particular would be, uh, would be brought on and would be, pre- would be perpetuated by this Ubermensch, uh, this, this one who would kill God and then would sort of pave the way for, for us to really achieve our, achieve our full destinies um, as the beyond man. And so this is where the transhumanists, of course, get all their cues for what can happen. We've been held down by the strictures of traditionalism and of church and of, the, uh, of theism, and we just need to really embrace non-theism or atheism and uh you know what we would call atheism very very typically um but sort of i mean like atheism kind of in the christopher hitchens sort of way and uh 
And we need to embrace that, embrace our common destiny, and really seek to improve ourselves and sort of become gods unto ourselves. And so there's this, there's this, um, and there's this initiative on the part of those people who follow the mold of Nietzsche to kind of achieve that ubermensch. And how do we do that? Well, we're going to, I don't know, we're going to upload our consciousness to the clouds. We're going to achieve machine body union. We're going to cryogenically freeze our heads so that we can, we can re- reunite our heads to some uh, mechanically perfect body of 3,000 years hence. Whatever it is, we're going to do something to it to become the ubermensch because God has died. Well, in Christianity, we say, no, because, because God has died, now he has paved the way for divinization. And in the, in the theology of the East, uh, the word that's more commonly used is theosis. Uh, we actually, our destiny is to become united with God. And so, yes, we will, in, in that sense, become God. Uh, it's Athanasius, I think. The Son of Man became man so that we might become God. Um, and so, again, Nietzsche's right. And this is, I think we're talking about the same event. Uh, it, you know, Nietzsche would disagree with us on the timing and exactly when that happened. And in Nietzsche's, it's, it's, a, um, it's a psychological, primarily sort of psychological and cultural and sociological fact of the death. For us, it's actually, no, it's actually a real physical corporeal death. Um, and we, differ, we, dis, we disagree on the timing, but actually, surprisingly, we agree on the conclusions. This is actually the, the, the before and after point of all of history. Um, and because of that, our destiny is completely and forever, uh, uh, you know, undoably altered. Uh, and so I think that's super interesting to draw those parallels and to see that Nietzsche, who's so, so close, Andrew, but obviously started from the wrong, that, that wrong premise that there is no actual God. Uh, and then that, that leads to his dreadfully wrong conclusions. But I would, I would, you know, just have a slightly different spin on what Cantalamesa said. And I don't think Cantalamesa would disagree with anything I've said. In fact, I think he's, he's pointing to these parallels. But I, would, I, would, I, think, I think we really need to think of it as this is the same death of God that we're proclaiming, but we're proclaiming it in a corporeal sense. And Nietzsche, in again, like a sociological, cultural, culturally embedded psychological sense. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you said, Zach, and I think that's really important clarification. I think maybe in, to keep going with that, um, you know, you mentioned our friend Larry Chap, and something that Larry likes to talk about is how we're all functionally atheists, um, and he gets that from you know he 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 says that along with a lot of other a lot of other great thinkers like um, I think like Augusto del Noche yep, and. Yep you know, um, various other people, right. Um, a, a shout out to another friend of ours, our friend, Bobby Mixa. He just wrote a really nice article about Nietzsche in the evangelization and culture journal where he, he gets into some of this. And he actually concludes in his article that there's a sense in which maybe Nietzsche is useful to us in, in showing us our atheism in a sense, right? Like that maybe the, the false God that we that the false god that we sort of think is the god who died on the cross and rose again but that we don't really live as if that is who that god is like that god should be dead that that god like we need to move beyond that god we, we need to be a, a you know we need to like get back in some sense to to the real god who really did die uh, and who really did uh, rise again and who gives us hope but in fact the way most of us live is not with that hope because we we actually are living the same, basically the same kind of like self improvement, self actualization, um, kind of uh, uh, denial of mortality. You know, all the same kinds of things that that you know uh, that atheists and and um, and others whose hope is in themselves do. We really that's really the way most of us live. Even though even those of us who go to mass, for ex- or who go to the liturgy on Good Friday, for example, and participate in it. And something that I'm just sort of, you know, I'm stopped in my tracks thinking about when I, when I 
process what Canta La Mesa is saying in this in this article is going back to my experience of being in church on Good Friday this year and participating in that in that liturgy, shouting out crucify him, crucify him, and like really trying to really trying to, to get my invite the Lord in a sense to like purify my heart in the right direction to to really know who he is and not imagine that he's someone that he's not. Um you know, it, it, this also reminds me of the, uh, the the movie A Hidden Life, the Terrence Malick movie, where there's a scene where um, Franz Jägerstetter, who's going to become a martyr, is in a church. We may have talked about this before, but I talk about it all the time. I love it. But he's in the church with a painter who's painting scenery, you know, painting these nice scenes of Jesus and all this sort of thing. And he says, you know, I can't I can't paint the real Christ because I haven't suffered enough yet. Yeah. And he says, but you know what? The people don't want the real Christ. They want the nice Christ. He's yes. like, they think yes. if they lived back in the time of Jesus, they, they wouldn't have crucified him. But, but they're, of course they would have, you know, they would have just gone along to get along because that's what humans do. Um, so anyway, just a great invitation in this, in this, um, in this homily to like really get back to the reality of God, of who he is, the God who died. I'll throw it back to you. No, I, I love that scene in hidden life. Uh, and I remember, watching it and last year and just thinking, wow, that, that is so true. We want to, uh, I mean, this, this is, this is why I'm really, uh, I'm strongly opposed to, um, well, I, I don't want to overstate my opposition here. Oftentimes there, you know, little prayer cards, for example, very helpful for people's piety and can draw close people closer to God. And I certainly don't want to, don't want to sort of pronounce that what is good for me is good for them and, and vice versa. Um, but I personally don't don't like many prayer cards because I find them to be sort of kitsch representations of what the faith is. Uh, I, have, I have a joke that I frequently repeat about like Swedish Jesus, you know, have this like very like fair skinned man with uh, long blonde hair um, and just, you know, not, not, you know, looks, looks nice, looks great. Um, looks like a very nice shepherd who'd be out tending the sheep perhaps um, in, you know, Stockholm, the suburbs of Stockholm or something. But uh, but doesn't doesn't convey to us the gravity of the person of Jesus and the suffering of the person of Jesus and how he carried all of our sins upon his shoulders, um, and so I, I I agree with that and I think we definitely need to return to the suffering Christ. We need to embrace that. We need to recognize uh, that it was my sin that put him there. Um, there's that uh, that that wonderful Lenten hymn that is certainly sung widely in the Anglican tradition, Andrew, as you and I both know. But Ah, Holy Jesus, whom hast thou offended? Um, and the the final word of that opening line, I, the opening verse, I think, is uh, "I crucified thee." Um, so it's and it's very visceral yeah. in in making his suffering present. So I think you're right. I think we need to move beyond the sort of the kitsch representations, the caricatures of of our God, who we crucified, yeah. um, and embrace Him as He is and was crucified, our crucified and risen Lord. Um, I also really liked how in this homily, Canta La Mesa talks about how we cannot judge uh, him whom only God knows. And mm-hmm. um, it's a useful corrective. I, I you know, am one who sort of tends towards, uh, tends towards judgments by nature. And uh, I like that Canta La Mesa says, what I'm saying is not that Nietzsche is definitely burning in hell. <laughs> he says, you know, yeah. I, that's not for me to say, and I'm not judging him, and I'm not interested in doing that, and certainly not our place. What I am saying is we have to judge the consequences of what he said. And objectively, we can look at the consequences of what he said and, rec- said and recognize this is, in fact, 
a world in which the death of God is widely proclaimed, but not in the way that it needs to be. And so he says, as believers, it is our duty to show what there is behind or underneath that proclamation, namely the flicker of an ancient flame, the sudden eruption of of a volcano that has never been extinguished since the beginning of the world. The human drama also had its prologue in heaven in that spirit of denial which did not accept existing in the grace of another. Since then, he has been recruiting supporters of his cause, the naive Adam and Eve being his first victims. You will be like gods, knowing good from evil. All this seems to modern man nothing but an ideological myth to explain the evil in the world. And in the positive sense given to myth today, such it is. But history, literature, and our own personal experience tell us that behind this myth, there is a transcendent truth that no historical account or philosophical reasoning could convey to us. God knows how proud we are and has come to our help by emptying himself in front of us. That's, yeah. that's fantastic. Yeah. And, and he, he then, you know, doubles down on the humility of Christ and, and, um, quoting Philippians two, which is, which is really powerful. And I think particularly poignant because I think that's the, the, that's the Christ that Nietzsche disdained, you know, the weak God, Yeah, you know, like, I mean, of course he died. He was, I mean, like, you know, that, that just, I mean, you know, I'm no Nietzsche specialist, but you know, I, I, I gather that, you know, he, he didn't admire Christ. He, he, you know, he thought that the weakness was, was perplexing. It was pitiable. Um, pitiable. Yeah. And I think, you know, not to, not to like beat up on our Protestant brothers and sisters here, but, you know, there's something um, very not Catholic about Nietzsche's perspective. And that I think, um, that I think someone like Cantalo Mesa really draws attention to, not overtly, not explicitly, but but implicitly, by preaching this homily in the context of the Good Friday liturgy, that the the God that Nietzsche is contemplating was just not um, not the God that he really not the God that that we're called to commune with, that we know, uh, that we sort of participate in in the kingdom with, that that you know reaches its sort of apex in the liturgy but um, pervades the rest of our lives as well. I mean, it seems to me that the God that he is critiquing is, um, is a, is a God of, of, of the page, you know, it's the God of just kind of a dry, a dry book, not, not the, it doesn't, it doesn't relate to the lived experience of, of kind of, um, of, of, of communing with this God who died and rose again. Yeah. And how, I mean, how common is that? Uh, as, yeah. a, as a sort of flaw in arguments against God, even today. It's very rare that I see a, a capable, well-formed logical argument against the God of classical theism slash the God of Christianity. It's much more often that I read something and think, that's not, you're not, you're not critiquing the Christian God. You're creating some sort of like, you know, imminent theistic, uh, theistic uh, yeah. presence, or you're critiquing, that, that's not against God, that's against Santa Claus. That's, that's a critique against Santa Claus, right? That's not actually the Christian God that you think you're attacking. Uh, very, a very common yeah. uh, rhetorical failure, I think, on the part of our, our erstwhile uh, atheist interlocutors. Um, yeah. I, I appreciate how Councilor Mesa ends this piece by saying, you know, wh- why do we need to proclaim it? What's, the, what's at stake here? And he says, it's not to, it's not to convince atheists they're wrong. And then very chillingly, he says, the most famous among the atheists find out they're wrong the moment they die, essentially. And that's, mm-hmm. that's pretty, that's pretty, pretty staggering thought. And again, he's not, he's not saying, you know, they're going to hell. He's just saying that, like, they're going to realize it, right? They know. They're, yeah. they're going to know. Um, 
he says, uh, and as for as for those who are still living among us, it's it's not going to be just some, you know a simple word that convinces them. They need more than that. But he says the real purpose here is to keep the believers among us from being drawn into the vortex into this vortex of nihilism, which is the true black hole of the spiritual universe. And I think that's very well put. I yeah. think that I think that as I as I evaluate and think about our culture around us, as I think about how am I going to raise my kids in this uh, this you know ridiculous era in which we live. Uh, a black hole of nihilism is a fantastic way of putting it. Um, there I, is a, you know, the, 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 the poem, the, the center cannot hold, you know, I, the, there is no center. It's a giant, it's a giant black nothingness uh, at the, that is, you know, anchoring our, 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 our culture is anchored by nothingness. It is, it is rotating heavily around the gravitational pull of nothing. It's a black hole. Um, now, we know that that's actually not reflective of reality. Uh, we, we are not actually reflecting. We're, we're not actually rotating around nothing, but our culture has made as its anchor point a black hole of nothingness. Yeah. Uh, and that is fundamentally the problem. Yeah. I'm reminded of, uh, there's a line that uh, Rene Girard said very late in his life. He said, the shape of the apocalypse is growing more apparent every day or something like that. And there's like this shape, you know, I think like, yeah, this image of like this, this black, the black hole, it's, it appears to be growing. And I mean, this is something I think about all the time as things like people comment, like it seems like things are getting crazier and crazier all the time. And I think that's right. Um, I think there is this kind of like exponential effect. And frankly, Zach, I was thinking about this, uh, you know, I, I think about this every time there's some, some real like kind of unspeakably horrible thing, like a school shooting. And we just had this one, this horrible one in Nashville. Right. And I think like, it's no surprise that it's not just like that extremists on different sides or like people with different, you know, people who are sort of enticed by different things are breaking like equally, you know, because it's like the vortex is, is growing, 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 right. Because whether you're sort of enamored with this or that or whatever it may be, like you realize you come to this, like, in, like you come to realize kind of the insanity of the idea that you are your own God. And then you give up, you yeah. give into despair right. and you, you then sort of like make this decision to take the black pill or whatever, just make this decision to say, well, the world is pretty much ruined anyway. So let's just go ahead and ruin the rest of it. I'll take myself out with it and we'll just be done with it. Um, this is a big concern. I mean, I, this is, this is a huge, a huge problem. And I think at the very least, you know, I think what Conte La Mesa is getting at here is something that I also get from uh, someone like the late Sir Roger Scruton. He, he also talks about this image of like looking down into the void. And he says, like, there's a strange there's something strangely enticing about the void. And, and he said, but you can't stand there and look down into it. You can't. Right. You have to get to work shoring it up, like shoring up the sides. So maybe it doesn't grow quite as much in your lifetime as it was going to, you know, do whatever. Right. Um, and that like, as people of hope, that's what we do. Like we can't do anything else. And I think like really focusing on the real God who really died and really rose again, who gives hope to the whole world is that's, that's what we have to focus on. Yeah. Could not agree more. Um, that's a great note to end this and this uh, reflection on, I think, unless you have anything else to add, we can move on to our, our final recommendations and wrap up for today. That's it. Okay, great. Well, let's move on to recommendations. I will start this time. Um, I read a book very recently, had not read it before. This was the first time read for me. I've read another book in the series, um, but Michael D. O'Brien, I don't know how familiar you are with his work, uh, Andrew. He is a Catholic novelist. Uh, all of his novels, I believe all, are published by Ignatius Press. And 
For my money, I mean, I, I'm not a literature, I'm not a literature, you know, professor of English literature by any means, but for my money, as far as the literary universe of which I'm aware, he is the most underrated Catholic novelist uh, alive today. Writes just absolutely sweepingly beautiful films. My wife's favorite book of all time is one called The Island of the World that I have not yet read. It's like a almost thousand page um, book that really uh, explores these themes of the suffering Christ through the central character of the novel. And the one that I just read that I'm recommending is called Sophia House. It does does some of the same, or it does sort of a similar project. Uh, it is the beginning of the Father Elijah trilogy. So it's it's Sophia House followed by Father Elijah followed by Elijah in Jerusalem, and Sophia House is stunningly beautiful, very well written. It ba- more or less, I mean, there's a, there's kind of the prologue to the book that is a, the introductory material to this man's life. But for the rest of the book, which is about 80, 85% of the book, it all takes place in a tiny little, you know, two room, uh, two room house, an attic and a shop downstairs. Um, and I won't say more than that because I don't want to spoil the plot, but it really explores these, uh, these questions of uh, theodicy, the, the problem of evil, of uh, our place in the world, of our struggle with sin, of God's redemption, of God's faithfulness of God's covenant faithfulness and just, just in, in ways that I, I think were just inspiring. Um, there's, there's one point in the middle of it where there's just this, this amazingly, amazingly beautiful play written by the character himself. Uh, and it goes into, um, ideas of Russian Orthodox spirituality and iconography. It's just, it's, it's amazing. I was really blown away by this. It was, it was kind of my Lenten fiction read and highly recommend Sophia house by Michael D O'Brien. Yeah, I have heard such great stuff about that author, and I have not read any of his books. So you're really spurring me on to to go ahead and do that. That sounds wonderful. Yeah, check out. I mean, I think Sophie House is a great entry point. It's certainly a lot shorter than Island of the World. Um, but you know, Strangers and Sojourners is another one. Voyage to Alpha Centauri is, is really kind of a weird like sci-fi one, but it's it explores some really interesting themes. Uh, Father Elijah is wonderful. So yeah, I, I can't recommend him highly enough. I think so, so highly of him. He's also an iconographer. He's actually an artist. I mean, just a multi-talented guy. He lives like, I think in rural Canada somewhere and he does icons yeah. and he writes novels and it's just, just amazing. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, my pick is uh, a TV show called Poker Face. Have you seen this yet? I have, on, yeah. On that Peacock? Yep. You have? Yep. Do you like it? No, I don't. I, uh, I, I'm, I'm curious to hear your recommendation then we'll talk about why I don't oh, like man. it. I thought it was so interesting. Okay. Here's my recommendation. I actually just, I just published an article yesterday, uh, where I talk a little bit about, uh, t- talk quite a bit about poker face. I thought poker face was really great. Um, created by Ryan uh, Johnson, what's his name? Ryan Johnson, yeah. right. Who directed the worst star Wars movie ever <laughs> or, or arguably the worst one ever. Um, and he also directed, um, uh, Knives Out, which yep. I liked, and then the sequel, which I did not like. Correct. And but the the TV show is called is called Poker Face, and it's a kind of murder of the week show that that is that harkens back to uh, shows like Murder She Wrote and um, the old Incredible Hulk with Bill Bixby and Magnum PI things like that. Um, but it stars Natasha Leone, uh, whom I like a lot. I thought her show Russian Doll was great. Russian Dolls, I really really like that show. Uh, she's really charming. She's really funny and interesting. And, um, she has the show focuses on this, this young woman who has this special gift, namely she can spot lies. So, uh, any, anytime somebody's lying, like just an overt lie, she can tell that they're lying. 
And needless to say, uh, people want to take advantage of this gift that she has. And she lives in Las Vegas and works in a casino. So obviously that's going to be a useful gift there. And her boss there tries to exploit her gift and then things go awry. And she ends up on the lam running in America. Just each, each week she's somewhere different in America. And, um, kind of like Jessica Fletcher on murder. She wrote, she always finds herself in a situation where she alone has what it takes to solve a murder mystery, to solve a, to solve a murder. And she herself gets into some real scrapes some real difficulties. And, um, Anyway, I really like this show for a few reasons. It's definitely a bit rough around the edges, so beware if you are going to watch it. Uh, but I really liked it because it 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 represents to me, and I wrote about this in my piece for Catholic World Report, but it represents to me a kind of post-fourth wave feminism uh, where you have a woman who is, uh, who is gifted and who is not interested in just sort of using what she has as a way of kind of sticking it to the patriarchy or making money or getting notoriety or prestige or making some kind of political statement. None of it, none of that applies to this character, Charlie's gift. In fact, in fact, the way that she uses her gift is kind of almost more like a ministry. Um, it's kind of a, it's like a, a heightened form of women's intuition that she's able to like apply to help people in their real lives. So anyway, I just liked it beginning to end. It was a lot of fun. I love those kinds of murder mystery shows that, you know, the, the ones from the eighties and, and, and before even. So, uh, I, I recommend it. I thought it was really good. I'm curious to know what you didn't like about it. No, I think I, I have some, some things to think about with your take on it there. I it hadn't, hadn't quite occurred to me that way. Um, and I think, but I think I largely agree with what you said. To me, it's not so much about the premise. I actually love the premise. And when I saw the trailer, I was thinking, this is going to be really good. You know, who knows if Ryan Johnson can, can pull it off because Knives Out was great. Knives Out, Glass Onion was horrible. Uh, and so, you know, I don't know what, I don't know what version of Ryan Johnson I'm going to get here, but I love the premise. I have this unique ability to tell if someone's lying, et cetera, et cetera. I'm sort of on the run. I thought episode one was good. Uh, because it did two things. One, it it showed her showed her sort of ability in action to solve a solve a murder, but also set the stage for what I hoped would become a pretty long running sort of meta narrative that connected the the episodes together. I watched I think six, five maybe 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 six, but I watched several of them, and in the ones that I watched, they were just too episodic for me. Uh, they didn't have that sort of meta narrative. Mm-hmm. It felt too. Um, sort of each episode sort of stood on its own a little bit too much. It was a little bit atomistic, I thought. And because it was atomistic, it then fell prey to this sort of like formulaic um, process. Like she's going to move to a yeah. new town. She's going to, you know, find a job working for little money. Someone's going to get, mur- you know, beyond belief, someone's going to get murdered <laughs> where she's working again. What do you know? And then she's going to be the only one who can solve it because she has this, but she's going to, you know, there's going to be this, this final tense moment where she almost gets herself killed before she makes the reveal, et cetera, et cetera. And it just felt, it just felt a little bit too formulaic for me. Uh, some of the acting, some of the acting is great. Some of the acting is not so great. Um, this is totally personal and is going to reveal me as not a good person, but I, I really have trouble like with Natasha Leon's voice. It just kind of like grates mm-hmm. on my nerves and, uh, mm-hmm. and is kind of hard for me to watch a lot of that. Um, so for all those reasons, not the biggest fan of poker face, I thought it had a lot more promise and I would love to see what a different director might do with it. But, um, you know, that is not, like, for example, I would love to actually see, uh, this would be a very big departure, but I would love to see like Aaron Sorkin direct, uh, a season of poker face and see what we would get. Yeah. Um, see now for me, I, I totally get where you're coming from with all of that. And I, there's part of me that agrees with me with you, but there's another part of me that's sort of so jaded about the, the ambitions of television shows nowadays. Yeah. 
that I kind of found it refreshing that they're just like, look, there's a, there is this sort of tenuous overarching thing going on here, which they do come back to at the end. But like, look, we're not going to take ourselves so seriously as to think like this show is going to like, you know, like change you in the same way that, you know, the Sopranos did or something yeah, like that, or, yeah. or I don't know, whatever. Right. No, that makes sense. Um, yeah. So I just kind of, I just kind of liked it. I settled into it and just sort of found it. Yeah. It was totally, totally ridiculous. Just like murder. She wrote is, or just like Columbo is or whatever. But like, I was just kind of like, this is enjoyable. Yeah. I really, this is refreshing for a change. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. To each his own, but I liked it. Totally fair. Well, yeah. Go check out poker face. Go read Sophia house. Uh, and uh, those are recommendations for the week. And we'll be back at some point, probably next month, to do another What A Week episode. Um, you can send, let us know what you thought of this one, uh, react to anything we talked about, maybe give us some ideas for future close reads or pass along some fake news segments that we can toss at each other for next time. Uh, my email, Zach at CreedalPodcast.com. Don't forget, there's no H, no K, just Z-A-C at CreedalPodcast.com. Andrew, thanks so much for joining. It was great to spend time with you again. Uh, we'll do it again soon. And to my listeners, God bless you.